Father, speak to us, please. If your servants are listening, give us hearts that are attentive to you. May your will be done today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you have had many times in your life where you've signed up for something like a phone contract or an internet uh, contract or something like that, and you have the terms and conditions that you have to sign. And if you're doing it then and there, you get this document that has about 50,000 words and it's in fine print that you would need binoculars to read. And usually, if you're anything like me, if you're doing it in front of the person, you kind of, for some uh, probably sinful reason within me, I like to pretend that I can speed read for that. And so I don't want them to feel like I'm completely ignorant. So I kind of like, you know, give it a good look over and uh, waiting for them to maybe like, you know, get nervous and say, okay, we were wrong. There was something we hid in there as though I was going to come across it. But obviously I'm not actually absorbing much of it at all uh, because it's a ridiculous amount of information to try and process there. You have these terms and conditions. And most of the time, if we're doing something like a phone contract or internet, we just hope that there's nothing wrong in there and we sign our life away and that's it. But of course, if there was something more significant than that and we receive these terms and conditions, we would want ideally for them to be clearly set out, clearly structured in a concise way, very easy for us to just read, okay, what's going to go wrong if I do this? Uh, what should I do to fulfill my end of the conditions? That's the way we would want it. And what we have in this passage here in these chapters are kind of like God's terms and conditions. They are sort of God's terms and conditions for what he requires for his people to enter into this covenant or who have already entered into the covenant. And now it's his terms and conditions for how they are to live now that he has saved them and instructs them for how they will then be blessed living in this relationship. This is called God's covenant. So these chapters here that we have through 27, 28, 29 and 30 are largely to do with God renewing the covenant that he made all the way back with Abraham many, many centuries before when he appeared to Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And I'm going to lead your descendants into this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. That is God's covenant. And covenant, of course, we think of covenant probably in terms of the covenant of marriage. That's the easiest way that we can think of. The covenant of marriage, where it's an agreement between two parties to come together. Uh, Tim Keller gives perhaps a helpful uh, framework of the covenant where he says it's the perfect combination of law and love. God's covenant is more than simply a legal contract, though it is particularly in the ancient Near East, this covenant ceremony that we're going to look at was a legally binding contractual agreement between two parties, usually between a God, a higher power and a lower people. And it's a legal contract. But God's covenant is more than simply a legal contract. It's also more than simply an agreement based on love or affection, like, if you, like a teenage romance where they commit to each other but really, there's nothing legally binding them. And that's why 90% of them end up breaking up. So God's covenant with his people is more than simply an agreement based on love. It is the perfect combination of law and love brought together where God commits to his people. So this 
covenant that God has made with his people, starting with Abraham, and now we see the, the Mosaic covenant as a renewal. Different people have different thoughts on this, but I see it as a renewal of the Abrahamic covenant, now where it's, it finds another sense of fulfillment in Moses, where Moses is um, giving the law and it's still God's covenant to his people. And this is what we have here in this passage. And the covenant that God makes is crucial because it's the foundation for how he relates to his people. And it's also the foundation for why he intervenes. God doesn't just intervene for every nation. No, he picks Israel. And it's because of this covenant, this covenant that he is committed to. And that becomes the reason why he intervenes for them. So all the way back in Exodus chapter two, when God's people are in Israel, um, sorry, when God's people are in Egypt, when God's people Israel are in Egypt and they're in slavery. And what happens then? We read in chapter 2, 24 of Exodus, God hears their groaning and God remembers his covenant with Abraham. Now, God doesn't forget anything, but that's just revealing something for us. It's revealing that, ah, God intervenes because he has made a covenant with them. He's not going to let them go off groaning. He's not going to leave them in slavery. He has made a covenant with them. He remembers the covenant. And so therefore he acts because of that covenant. So God's part of the covenant, his agreement is to be a loving and caring protector and provider for his people. But there are also covenant requirements for God's people. That's God's end of the deal, to love and care for his people, to provide for them, to protect them, to bless them. But then there is something required of the people, and that is to walk in obedience to everything that God sets out in his covenant law, the 10 words that he gives, the rest of the law, these are part of God's covenant and God requires them, the people, to live in obedience to this. So God's part of the covenant, love and bless his people, provide for them in this new flourishing land. The people's part of the covenant, walk in obedience to this God who has saved them. Follow his instructions because that is the best way for them to live. And so here we come then to chapter 27, where God's people, starting from Abraham, descendants are in Egypt, they grow to be this flourishing people, and then they're all of a sudden led through 40 years in the wilderness, and they're just at the edge of the promised land now. And this is what we have here in chapter 27, where they're about to renew this covenant as a way of sort of rallying them. It's like Moses saying, okay, I know I've been saying this again and again for the last 40 years, but we're almost there. We're almost at the promised land. Now, remember the whole reason why we're going here, because of this covenant that God has made with us. This is the whole reason. So in verse 1 of chapter 27, we read, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. So this is Israel's part of the covenant. We see it right here. They are to keep the whole commandment. That is everything that has gone before, all of the laws that had gone before. They are to keep that. And that's their end of the covenant. And what we read here is that, as we read on from verse 2, the people are to set up large stones and they are to plaster them. Now, the plastering is just basically to make it white so that you could then write on them so that it's visible. So they're to set up these large stones 
and they had to plaster them so that the writing of the law could be seen. And then these stones are to be set up on Mount Ebal. Now, if you remember last year, like feels like a long time ago, we actually went through Deuteronomy chapter 11. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, this is actually a much more concise version of what we're reading about here, where Moses is talking about this situation and he's saying, right, when you're about to enter into the promised land, you're going to set up, there's going to be two mountains. There's going to be Mount Ebal, which as you cross over the Jordan, Mount Ebal is going to be on your right to the north, heading away from Jerusalem, which is the place of God's presence. And then there's going to be Mount Gerizim, which is going to be to the left. So you've got these two mountains. Mount Gerizim is heading toward the place of God's presence, Jerusalem. And what happens is half of the tribes stand on Mount Ebal, half of the tribes' representatives stand on Mount Gerizim, and the ones on Mount Ebal pronounce curses, and the ones on Mount Gerizim pronounce blessings. And it's a way of the people tangibly being reminded that they have these two choices before them. If we walk in disobedience to God's commands, All of these curses, we will be like living on Mount Ebal, where we will receive the covenant curses. And that's what we read through chapter 27 from verses 9 to 26. It's all curses. Curses the man who makes a carved or or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord. We receive like you just set out all of these curses and it's a reminder for them. Hey, this is going to happen to us if we walk in disobedience. But then, of course, if we walk in obedience to the Lord, all of these blessings will come. We read about more of these blessings in chapter 28. Blessings for obedience. So see the picture here of two choices. There's either curses for disobedience or blessing for obedience. And realize the application for us now. I know our society likes to make it seem like there is a plurality of choices. You know, choose your own adventure. It'll all work out great. You can follow whatever path you want. But actually, no. There are two ways to live. There is either blessing or curse, life or death, heaven or hell. And that's it. C.S. Lewis famously says there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every split second and every square inch is claimed by God and at the same time counterclaimed by Satan. That's it. You have two ways to live. You're either under the authority of the Lord Jesus or you're under the authority of Satan. And there are two ways to live. And this is what God has reminded them. Hey, if you disobey me, that's it. You're cursed. You're cast out. You're not going to find another way, another path to me. So God's people have these two choices. Obedience to God's covenant law, which results in blessing. Or disobedience to God's covenant law, which results in curse. Now, there are two things that I want us critically to understand here. When we think about obedience to God's law or disobedience and receiving a curse, there are two things that I want us to understand. The first, we have to understand the context of God's covenant in his saving work. Realize the context, like the 10 commandments, the 10 words have a context. They have a context. And that is in God's already existing saving work. God has already saved them from Egypt. And then he says, now this is how you are to live. The context is God already revealing himself. Notice he doesn't appear to them in Egypt and say, hey, if you can walk in obedience to me, then I'll save you. 
then I'll save you out of Egypt. No, he reveals himself as a savior. And then he says, this is how you are to live. That's the first thing we have to understand. The 10 words or the 10 commandments and the covenant law have a context. And the context is God's already existing saving work. He's already revealed himself as a savior. The second thing to understand that we can't miss is that God's covenantal blessing is on the basis of the people's obedience. You can't ignore that. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. Very clearly, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. Crystal clear. The covenant blessings are on the basis of obedience. God just sets it out so clearly. He says, hey, you have to obey me to receive this blessing. Notice then verse 15 of chapter 28. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all of these curses will come upon you. You can obey, receive the blessing. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Plain and simple. There is an obedience required on behalf of God's covenantal people. And just as a bit of a side point, but still related, this is hard for us in the modern uh, church, in this modern world to understand, because we've been quite influenced by this idea of works-based righteousness or legalism, which is basically this idea that if you uh, do anything to receive God's favor, to receive God's salvation, then it is works-based righteousness. And of course, that's true. We don't do anything to earn God's salvation. It's a gift. That's the gospel. It comes freely as a gift. The moment you feel like you bring anything to the table, you undo everything. Grace is a gift. But the problem is that we have then taken all forms of obedience and we've wrapped it up and put it in this bag of works-based righteousness or legalism. And so we think that any call for obedience is somehow legalism, and it's absolutely absurd. It would be like, I'm, you don't have to imagine this because it's real, I'm married to Jasmine. I was about to say, imagine if I'm married to Jasmine. I am married to Jasmine. Imagine if I then choose to uh, drift off down this path of idiocy, and I just basically don't spend any time with Jasmine. I stop coming home. I stop caring for her. I'm out all the time. I'm living a completely different life. And hopefully one of you who loves me enough will then pull me aside and say, Tom, what are you doing? You're completely ignoring Jasmine. You haven't been home in months. You're not caring for her at all. You need to care for her. You need to go home. You need to show her that you love her. And imagine if I said, whoa, man, what is this legalism? You think I should do something to get her love? This works-based marriage righteousness, I don't subscribe to that. Get out of here, I'm gonna do my own. It's grace, man. It's purely based on grace. She knows I love her. How ridiculous would that be? That would be the evidence that I actually never loved her, that there is no love present, that I'm choosing to love myself and follow another path. Obedience doesn't earn me her love, but obedience within marriage comes because there is this already existing love that exists there. There is this covenant of marriage. Therefore, I want to spend time with her. I do things for her. I enjoy it. And that's the key here for Israel's 
obedience to receive the blessing is rather than Israel walking in obedience to receive God's favor in that sense, the covenant requirements for obedience, it's better to put it as the way that Israel can enjoy their covenant relationship. Their obedience is how God says, okay, now here's how you can enjoy all of my blessings. I've already come and I've made this covenant with you. Now here's how you enjoy it. And so a better way to understand is that Israel must walk in obedience to enjoy their covenant relationship. So this is what we have to understand. But the the crucial thing that we cannot miss here, because don't hear me saying that as something of their obedience doesn't really matter and God won't curse them for disobedience. No, God will curse them for disobedience. Their obedience is how they enjoy their covenant relationship, but there is still a call for obedience that is part of the covenant and there will be repercussions for their disobedience. There will be covenant curses that come upon them for their disobedience. And we'll see later on how God deals with the people's disobedience while maintaining his covenant, while maintaining his commitment. So just to summarize those two points there, God's covenant is in the context of his already existing saving work. And secondly, obedience is required for God's people to uphold their end of the covenant. But God's design was that their obedience would primarily be the way in which they enjoy their covenant relationship, that they enjoy walking with the Lord their God. So see this picture here for the people of Israel, where they've seen God's saving hand and he is setting before them these two choices, blessing or curse, life or death, obedience or disobedience. And through chapters 29 to 30, we then read of this final covenant warning. This is again, Moses rallying the people, getting them ready to receive the inheritance. And he is giving them this final warning, urging them to walk in obedience to him. And this is where chapters 29 and 30 shed more light on the reality of our obedience and how it relates to our salvation. So look at chapter 29 and just starting at verse 2. We read, Moses summons all Israel and he says to them, you have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But then notice verse four, he says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So this is the key problem for Israel. And Moses is making it explicit. The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. The problem for Israel is hard hearts. And when we look at the covenant curses, we read them and we realize that Israel actually received many of these covenant curses through their disobedience. They actually received the covenant curses. They did not walk in obedience. They chose disobedience and they received the curses. Just for example, Deuteronomy 28, 36 to 37 says, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. This is referring to exile. 
So that was part of the curses. God said, if you don't walk in obedience to me, then you're going to go off to a nation that neither you know nor your fathers know. We know that happened for the northern tribe of Israel, taken by the Assyrians. We know that happened for the southern tribe of Judah, taken off to Babylon. They were both exiled. So they received the covenant curses and it was all to do with their stubborn and rebellious hearts. And so chapter, not, um, chapter 29 here is Moses basically warning them not to have stubborn hearts. In fact, he's preempting. He actually knows that they are going to rebel because in verses 25 to 28 of chapter 29, he actually says that he's almost saying it as if it will happen. He says the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them. He's saying this is what's going to happen. You're going to go off and worship other gods and serve them and people will look on and it will blaspheme the name of God. And so 27, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his land, bringing upon her all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. So this is the problem. Israel had hard hearts. They had hard hearts. They chose the path of disobedience. And that's a huge problem. But in chapter 30, we see the solution to this hard heartedness. We see this wonderful picture of hope that would solve the problem of hard hearts. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Notice this is him preempting the disobedience and saying, but when that happens, the Lord will gather you back in. He will commit to his covenant. He's not going to break his covenant. He will gather you back in and have mercy on you. He even says, if you were in the uttermost parts of heaven, you know, as if it were possible to just be so far away, you're off planet Earth. The Lord, since he owns everything, since he's everywhere, will bring you back in. He will have mercy on you. And the key promise is here in verse 6 of chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The problem was hard hearts. So what do you have to do? You have to circumcise the heart. You have to cut off the dullness and the hardness of the heart so that people walk in obedience to the Lord, so that they actually love him. This is the solution. In the midst of all this hopelessness that comes from stubborn and rebellious hearts that we see in the people Israel, we see this unshakable light of God's mercy. We see this wonderful mercy. God's overwhelming mercy is shown where even though, even though his people do not uphold their end of the covenant, even though his people choose the path of disobedience, he still provides a way for us to receive the covenant blessing. 
He still provides a way. The promise here in chapter 30 is the foreshadowing of God's ultimate means of covenanting with his people, which is to provide the one, the only one who would live faithfully, the only one who would live in obedience to all of God's covenant requirements to provide him in order to live faithfully, to uphold the demands of the covenant and then to take the curses of the covenant upon himself in our place. Because, see, this is crucial. God doesn't just arbitrarily do away with the covenant, with all of the demands. He doesn't just arbitrarily do away with it and kind of say like, oh, I guess that didn't work. Should have seen that coming. Well, I've got a plan B. It's not that at all. It's plan A and that's it. He doesn't need a plan B. The conditions of the covenant remain. The conditions of the covenant remain. The, the requirement for the people to walk faithfully before the Lord remain. And the reality of the curses remain for all those who walk in disobedience. So God goes far beyond his end of the covenant to achieve the always intended result of the covenant, which was the union of his people. That was the point of the promised land. And that's why we still await this heavenly Jerusalem, because the point of it is the ultimate union of God and his people coming together. That's God's covenant commitment and he will bring it about. So how does he do this? Well, very clearly, he provides the promised one. He provides the Messiah. He provides Jesus Christ, the one who could fulfill all the requirements of the old covenant. And this is how we receive the new covenant. The old covenant isn't plan A and the new covenant plan B. The new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant. It's what the old covenant was always pointing to. Someone who could fulfill the demands of the covenant and then take the curses upon himself so that we could then be brought in. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brings about the new covenant where all of the old covenant promises find their fulfillment. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And sometimes I wonder if we fail to see the integral connection of old and new in the life of Christ. I mean, have you, I've spoken about this once or twice before. Have you ever thought about why the life of Jesus on earth mirrors so much of the life of Israel? Have you ever thought about that? Why? Why? We know that Israel were in slavery in the land of Egypt. And then they were called out. And where was Jesus when he was a two-year-old? He was in the land of Egypt. And then he was called out. And Matthew actually uses that passage in the Gospel of Matthew and says, Jesus was called out of Egypt and this was to fulfill what God wrote about when he called the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Jesus' life mirrors that. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea, which Paul refers to as a baptism, just as Israel was brought out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea and then they went into the wilderness for 40 years. What happens with Jesus' life? He is baptized, then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. Just as Israel were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And when Jesus is in the wilderness being tested by Satan, what book does he refer to most? Deuteronomy. He refers to Deuteronomy, where Israel failed in their task of obedience, where they did not 
walk faithfully with the Lord, Jesus comes along. He's tested by Satan for 40 days. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You shall not test the Lord your God. He actually uses Deuteronomy to show, hey, where Israel failed, I, as the true Israel, will succeed so that I can bring you in so that all the promises can come. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ takes the covenant curse because he walked faithfully in obedience to all of God's commands to be in a position to then take the covenant curse upon himself so that we, as the seed of Abraham, the Gentiles, might receive the promised spirit through faith in his life. So we still have this same picture of two choices before us. If we start applying this to ourselves, we still have these two choices, blessing and curse, life and death. And the overwhelming mercy of God is seen where he not only sets it before us, he not only sets it before us, but he actually then provides the means by which we would receive the blessing. It's kind of like if you're at work, you're at the end of the day and your boss comes and says, oh, I'm really sorry, I've got this task that's probably going to take you all night and you've had a terrible day. And so it's just the most crushing thing to think, oh, I'm going to be here all night. And then like a minute later, he says, oh, by the way, I did it for you. You can go home. It's outrageous. Like that's what God's doing. He's saying, you must walk in absolute obedience. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, and my son's going to do it for you. So just trust in him. That is the wonderful reality of the grace of God. The demand for obedience to God's covenant law is met completely by Christ. And then the curse for disobedience is absorbed by Christ for all who turn to him. So if we think back to these terms and conditions, if we think of our terms and conditions, we think of the condition of perfect obedience to God the Father. And we look at those terms and conditions for us. And it says, perfect obedience to God the Father, met by Jesus Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself, met by Jesus Christ. All of the laws met by Jesus Christ, living according to every word from the mouth of God, met by Christ. What is our requirement? Trust in Jesus. That's it. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his life of perfect faithfulness. And that's the beautiful thing. It's not like God just stayed distant to say, hey, just trust in this idea of Jesus. No, he provides his son to live as we live, to live and be tried and tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, to live faithfully. And then he says, he gives the concrete example and says, now trust in my son whom I gave for you. He is our life. That's why Peter in his first letter says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That's the reality. Christ achieves the ultimate goal of the covenant, the union of his people. Jesus, the righteous, suffers for the unrighteous to bring us together, to bring us with God. 
This is the radical reality of God's covenant. He actually gives his son as the covenant. I don't know if you have uh, come across Isaiah 42 before. There's actually a bunch of passages that talk about this, but Isaiah 42, which is one of the servant songs, so it's talking about this, it's foreshadowing the Messiah, it's talking about Jesus, basically. And it says in verse 8, in a time of favor, this is God saying, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. He's talking about Jesus. And he actually says, he doesn't just say, I will give a new covenant. He says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. I will give you, Jesus, as a covenant to the people, my son. This is God saying, here's my covenant. Here's the reason you can trust in my covenant. My son, he's the covenant. He's what seals you together. The blood of Christ unites us with the God of heaven and earth. And so what more could we possibly need to know that for why God is for us. I think this is the background of why Paul says that in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if he who did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us, how will he not with us free, with him freely give us all things? That's why we know because God has said, I'm not going to withhold my own son. He's going to be the covenant. He is the covenant. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper, we take his body and blood as the new covenant. That's the seal of of the covenant and all that is required of us is to look to the perfect life of Jesus and trust in him now there's still a call for obedience we still have these two choices set before us obedience to God's word or disobedience but the beautiful reality about the new covenant is that the same grace which saves us is the same grace which empowers us to live faithfully before him god provides the grace to save us he provides the grace to sustain us to cause us to walk in obedience to him so we continue looking to the author and perfecter of our faith because that will sustain us since it's His grace working within us. So obedience isn't the requirement for salvation, but of course it is the evidence that salvation has come. It is the fruit of salvation. It is the evidence that God's love has been poured out into your hearts because apart from that love, you would have no desire for obedience to the Lord. And that's why John in his first letter says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God. John actually says, whoever has been born of God doesn't keep on sinning because the seed of Christ remains in him. It's like a fact. And he can say that because it's nothing to do with us. It's the grace of God working within us. The love of God is poured out into our hearts. And then that's the same love that overflows to love him and love our neighbor as ourselves. So our obedience becomes the fruit of salvation. Obedience for the follower of Jesus, just as I finish, obedience for the follower of Jesus is the pursuit of complete joy and satisfaction in our Savior who has taken the curse upon himself so that we might receive the blessing of union with God. Please spend the rest of your lives being utterly astounded with this reality that Christ would take the curse upon himself 
we would receive the blessing and we get to swim in this ocean of delight every single day of our lives and it only gets better and better. We have eternity waiting for us to find the full reality of it. Yet now we get to enjoy this covenant relationship. We get to worship our Lord. We get to walk in obedience because the obedience is actually the grace of God overflowing within us working within us and so we work out our fear and salvation our salvation with fear and trembling because it is him who works within us to will and to do for his good pleasure what a thrill let me finish with prayer and then we will sing one last song in response father thank you for this beautiful picture of the two choices we have of life and death blessing and curse and you in your overwhelming mercy you come and you almost make the decision for us you come and you save us because we're dead we can't do anything you come and you pour out your mercy upon us you save us and then you provide the means by which the requirements of the covenant would be upheld in the life and death of jesus christ and now we just receive your grace. We just get to bask in this wonderful gift of salvation. And so we praise you for that. And we ask that in your kindness, you would just fill us again and again with awe over this wonderful truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.